Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. One of the most helpful things a leader can do is talk about the difficult times in the job. I recently heard my next guest talk candidly about how she was bullied as an executive. We all know what bullying looks like in the classroom, but what happens when you're an adult and perhaps even in a senior role? Kate Mason says she fell into a career in human resources and she was very good at it. She held roles in Zurich, Singapore and New York before being headhunted by Coca-Cola Amatil, where she oversaw 10,000 employees. In 2021, she founded her own company, Self Energy. Kate, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. I, I want to start by asking you a little bit about Self Energy. It's such a great name. Oh, thank you. I set up Self Energy nine months ago, primarily to do what I really love to do, which is to enable other people's to success. So Self is all about ensuring that we put the, a human in the driver's seat. And energy is all about ensuring that we do what we actually want to do. So self-energy is about connecting authentically with the human, realising someone's purpose, helping individuals to understand that or businesses or boards to realise what purpose is about, and then energising the potential of businesses and people to realise that purpose. So self and energy together are, I think, a really powerful combination because if we think of ourselves as individuals, we've only got a finite source of energy. So what do your clients look like? So boards, C-suite executives. Um, so I set up a coaching and advisory business. That's really what the name of Self Energy is about. And that's to take 35 years of my corporate experiences. So across diverse industries, diverse countries and diverse situations. And sort of I was always about change in chief people officer roles and taking all of those lived experiences and then my passion to continue to create a world where all people can grow and thrive, really then that's how self-energy came about. So my what I'm really passionate about is I have a fundamental belief, I think, for your audience. That belief is that all people can grow and thrive. And for women, I believe that roles for women are endless. And therefore, the potential of women should also be endless. So where I go with that a lot is ensuring that a lot of my clients are looking at potentially wanting to have the courage and the confidence to get into the pipeline for C-suite level roles, ensuring that women actually have a voice and can think about, do I really want to stay in a functional role? Do I want to, with the right coaching and the right support, move into a P&L role so that I could be a CEO? Do I want to finish my exec or corporate career now and I actually want to move on to a board role? So that's where sort of that coaching piece comes from. And again, it's the 
authenticity, the purpose and potential of individuals to do that. Can we talk just a little bit about confidence? There's probably not a day goes by where that word isn't used. And it doesn't matter whether I'm talking to members of the Future Women Jobs Academy who are underemployed women, sometimes have been out of work for a number of years or taken long career breaks, or all the way through to the most successful women in the country who I have the privilege of interviewing through this podcast. And it comes up time and time again, confidence, but there's a growing undercurrent of backlash to that word in the context of women. What do you see in terms of the reality of a lack of confidence in women? Is it real in terms of their own confidence or is it structural, i.e., you know, it's not their fault that they lack confidence, it's the system? Great question. I think it's both. I definitely think if you look at some of our systems and let's talk about leadership, what, you know, the models of leadership that will enable particularly women who are coming back from career breaks, thinking about having children, getting on in their career, you know, are they supported and enabled to do that? And a lot of times when you look at a structural system or you see the only way to get ahead is, you know, if I'm working 14, 16, 18 hour days and I might be balancing some of my other child minding or other carer responsibilities, there's a feeling that I can't get ahead. So therefore I start to lose my own confidence, right? Because I don't feel like I can actually conform to that set of expectations. I think on an individual woman, you know, when you think about some of the environments that women find themselves in, sometimes we're our own worst enemies. We do do a lot of comparisons right? We do think that we have to be someone that we're not because we're trying to fit into that system. And the other thing I think that a lot of women I talk to actually have been told, if you come across as being too confident, you're almost becoming too pushy and too assertive. And therefore, you start to listen to that rhetoric, right? And so people actually say, well, how do I show that I'm okay and I am confident. I do want to take that job or I do want to put my hand up for for being on that project team. But a lot of times they've been told I can't. And then the final thing I see a lot of is where confidence really is eroding is where women find themselves in a toxic leadership situation or in a culture which just doesn't support who they are and what they are and they start to believe other people's narrative about themselves. It is interesting to me that the word confidence, I think, is a little bit under threat in terms of training and coaching. And I mean that in the sense that I'm cautious about using the word because it runs very close to fixing women. Yeah. Even though I know from every day that confidence is a key concern for women of all shapes, sizes and backgrounds and experiences. Moving on to toxic workplaces, one of the things I really want to talk to you about was at the FW Leadership Summit this year, you told a really compelling personal story about being a senior woman and in a senior role and finding yourself the subject of being bullied. Can you tell this audience a little bit about that story? Mm. I had taken a job in Melbourne because it was the only actual job someone would look at me having. I had been overseas. I'd had a big international career for many years. And looking back, it was 
probably a role that I was overqualified for, so therefore I put under threat the man that was in the more senior role that I, I reported to. So that was the context of which I was in. And what systematically happened over time is that any of my ideas were rubbished. I was kept out of communication loops because I was seen as a threat. I was about to present at global boards and suddenly there would have been a a cut in the budget, so therefore only he could go and deliver all of my work. And this went on for a period of time. And it's interesting because we just talked about confidence before. My confidence and my self-belief was getting totally eroded because when you're told that your ideas are not good enough, when you think you're about to present and then it suddenly you're not presented, when you don't have all the information, so you spend a lot of time doing a lot of work and then realising actually they didn't want a red wall, they wanted a blue wall, you are just sitting there and any of your skills and your background and your previous experiences, you just think, is this me? So we personalise it and internalise it and that's where I think you do get the loss of self-belief and the loss of confidence. And it took me a while to realise that I was being defined by what one person thought of me, right? And even the performance reviews were like, you're sub-average, you've got to pull your socks up in these areas. The more you start doubting yourself, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Then you start to think, oh, I really am all of these things. So his definition of me was the one that I started hearing in my head. And it was only when I actually got perspective, which I think is such an underutilised word, that I had to step back and I reached out to some friends and I just said, I just want to talk to you through what's happening to me. And that took a lot of courage because we often don't reach out. So I reached out to a group of senior men and women and I said, I just need to tell you about what's going on for me. And they were the ones that said, Kate, you're being bullied. So I had the courage and I think you have a choice then. So I chose to speak up, which took every ounce of courage that I had. I then negotiated because unfortunately in the business that I was in, it was still seen as quite a boys club and it was going to be my word against a man's word. And I negotiated a settlement. And the settlement was not what you would think because I wanted to go quietly. This is where I think a lot of us, men and women, and particularly women I'm finding, because you have forgotten what your value is, you settle for far less than you really should settle for. Why? Because you're in so much shame that you're not going to get another job. And so I was sitting there thinking, I don't want this to destroy. I've had, you know, 25 years experience. I don't want this to destroy my career. I don't want this to get out. What you don't realise is it's actually probably far more dangerous, and I've subsequently learnt that for a business and an organisation, especially in 2022, to have a senior woman um, speak out. It's in their best interest not to have you speak. But you're still blaming yourself. But then you still blame yourself. Exactly right. So where now, what I... I found that was really helpful for me is I found another very, very senior woman who someone said, you need to talk to her. The same thing has just happened from her in one of our big banks. And what happened is we became each other's belief coaches. And I think that's a really important thing of how I was then able to rebuild 
and borrow other people's courage and belief in me as I reconnected with my my own sense of belief and my own sense of value. Can you tell me what was going on around you at that time? What were your colleagues in the business doing and around that uh, leader? So it was well known and a lot of people had just put up with sort of what I'd call the toxic culture but not the toxic bullying. They had chosen just to take the path of least resistance and also didn't want to rock the boat. Then the other thing that I think if you looked at, no one was looking at the retention rates, there were a lot of people choosing to leave. And were those people further down the... Yes. Yeah. Correct. So it's interesting to me because it is like a schoolyard situation where the unpopular kid is identified for reasons that are never particularly common. It's just they you can have wrong hair colour or shape in that particular school in that particular class and they that child is chosen as the one that's to be bullied and everyone plays that game. But in the workplace, it, it it's sort of the same. The colleagues understand that you're the unpopular person in the team, so they tend to all form around that consensus. No one really stands up for you. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, it, it was actually different because I was also the leader of many of them and one of my fundamental beliefs around leadership is do you amplify stress or do you absorb it? So I would say a lot of my journey was a very private journey. It was behind closed doors. It's so subtle and it's never in front of other people. It might be one or two words, but people just dismiss it. But the systematic bullying often happens when no one is looking. I think the first thing. And then the second thing I've always believed for myself as a leader is I have a choice how I choose to show up and I can live my leadership values and use my own sense of ensuring that others are okay and I have the choice of being the leader that I want to be, not be the leader that is more aligned to the bully. And I think you get better at that. I think this generation coming through is much better at that than, say, when we were growing up and you thought there was only one definition of a leader. So the leader that was bullying me was a very old-fashioned leader, was command and control, keep everyone down. No one was going to threaten the power base. And if they did, you were put back down in your place. So your work life is in turmoil usually that's putting a lot of pressure on at home. What was going on at home at the same time? At home, my marriage was disintegrating. I had taken a job in Melbourne, even though we'd just moved the family back to Sydney. And the reason I had done that is because my ex-husband kept losing his jobs and we had three children that were going through school and trying to pay for, for their private education And so I had an ex-husband who I thought would help me when I wanted to leave on my own accord, but kept telling me that we needed the money. Did you disclose any of that personal circumstance to your immediate boss or any of your colleagues? This happened actually exactly at the same time. And so that was, it was like the firestorm at home and the firestorm in the office. And the home thing had been coming for quite a period of time. So uh, 
the more successful I became, the more home didn't work. So I was in a, an, an emotionally, physically abusive relationship. But it was controllable when the money was coming in and life was being enabled. But I, would, I had taken over inadvertently. I was the only breadwinner. And I think for women who are in these situations, you don't believe that you've got a choice. And so I had a home voice saying, it's you. And I had a work voice saying that it was you. And that was the perfect storm for me. And I had to actually, then it was actually, you need to know who you're reaching out to. And for anyone out there who thinks that you're reaching out to the right people, I reached out to people even around my own situation around my marriage quite a few times, but I was brought up Catholic, death to us part, right? So the people I reached out to said, try harder. I don't think we realise how often we get advice or people's opinions that are so unhelpful. Try harder, not I've really listened and you're, you're actually in danger. What's your advice then to a woman who's got that going on at home in terms of, in a sort of a, a theoretical sense, declaring it to their boss in a contemporary workplace? I think we're allowing more and more of those conversations and that's where we've got now support services for that. Certainly the generation I grew up in, you had a line where you kept work at work and home at home and that's blurred and certainly blurred more in the last few years where I think it is more acceptable. If you've got a caring boss and you're needing more flexibility, I think there's more bosses that will listen and work with you these days the other thing that I think has become more open is that we are now talking about these. We still need to keep talking about things like that. And I just want to thank you for telling that story and telling it that day at the summit because it stood out to me that not many women at the top of their profession still feel okay about telling those stories. Would you agree with that? Totally. And I have no time for any woman or man who says their whole careers and their whole lives have been just perfect. It's just like, really? How quickly can I call that out? That cannot be true. I mean, we want equality. We want the next generation to come through. And if we continue to perpetuate myths that we had it all, everything worked perfectly, no problems whatsoever. You know, they read out these perfect bios that look like we are brilliant <laughs> and we've never all had a bad day. Life is messy and hard and if we don't tell stories and we don't ensure that then others know that it's okay that you do fail or you do make wrong decisions, then we've got another huge problem on our hands. I think. And so for me, I want to tell those stories to just say that you are going to be okay and you can pick, you know, we always always used to talk about pull my big girl socks up and resilience and adapt and learn and grow. That's what we're about. I think that's highly important for us to do as women. But the second thing is, is to actually be there. And Helen, I will tell you, as a result of telling that story at, at the wonderful Future Women program for International Women's Day, I had some brave souls reach out to me in LinkedIn and actually ask for my advice. And it's always a privilege then 
when you can just quietly help another fellow woman just with just a little bit of advice or even just listening to their story and just telling them, you are going to be okay. I'm hearing you now. What can I do for you right now? And sometimes all you need is a sympathetic ear and someone to talk to. And here's a couple of things you could consider doing. So let's talk about toxic workplaces, generally speaking. Uh, Our audience today is um, young women, you know, working in all sorts of different organisations. Many of them would feel today they're in a toxic workplace. What sort of things do you see that you would identify as being a toxic workplace? Definitely the quality of the leadership is really important. You know, do people say something and then act differently? The key things that I would look for is have you got shared goals? Is there a shared sense of purpose? Or is it all, well, Sally knows and Bob knows because they're the favourites and the rest of you can, you know, all huddle and figure things out your way. So if a leader's playing favourites, if you can't understand why some people in your team are getting promotions and others aren't, if there isn't an equal sense of what's important, what's going to be valued, that I think is important. The subtle ones, I think, of when you get a really poor leader is they're only in service of themselves, not in service of others. So performance management, you don't have development conversations, right? It's because why would I care about developing others? It's all in service of me. You have a lot of times that leaders will (laughs) unfortunately take the work of others. It's easy to say what's great leadership but we've all had experiences where our workers just like, oh, I did this, I did this, but really they didn't. And so when you've got, I think that's a sign of toxic leadership when you're not recognised and rewarded for your contributions. And then finally, it's what we were just talking about before, is that people are, are putting you down. They're only focused on what you're doing wrong. There is no focus on what you're doing right, what you've tried even to get right. and it's their word against your word and there's never any grey there. What advice do you have for anyone listening today that's going through that right now? I think the best defence is always knowing your own worth and not being defined by someone else and I learnt that the hard way. So when you are thinking that someone else is owning your narrative or telling you who you are and how you are behaving, I think there's something really really worth watching out for. So I think owning your own narrative because toxic leadership feeds what we were talking about before, the imposter syndrome. A support network is really, really important. You know, being able to, when you might lose perspective, saying, hey, does this sound okay to you, to people that you know and trust, I think is is really important. I think also us speaking up, but speaking up as an empowered voice, and that's probably what I would do differently. I was pretty sure that I wouldn't have been the first person 10 years ago when this happened, but I was the only voice that I was hearing that was prepared to speak up. And I think if we do find more people that are just saying that is not acceptable, then there's the power of a collective voice to actually bring about some change. And I think, know that you have the power to choose. And I think that's a really important thing for us as women is choose do I want to stay and fight this 
or do I have the courage to walk and find another place to work? And if I am, what am I going to learn from it? I think we take learnings. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to accept roles. And you know within the first few days you go, oh, my God, I've taken a role that was described in one way and is totally different. You trust your intuition where you're going, ugh, I've made a wrong decision. Well, how quickly you can own that so you don't get really impacted and fall too far, I think is really important. But do then think about, well, what were the learnings? What were the questions I should have asked going into that job? So when I'm in a, next time I'm being interviewed for a job, what cultural questions am I asking? What leadership questions am I asking? What situational questions am I asking? Actually get some specifics that are going to be really important to you. And you want to make sure that those are actually being met and will be met and you'll be nurtured in the way that you need to be nurtured and grown by the leader that you are picking. Just as I always say, it's it's a two-way street. We always think, oh, will the leader pick me? Will I get the job? But just be really sure that you've got a 50-50 choice here because you're going to either accept that role or not. How long do you think it took you to move on from that experience? Five months of sitting on a couch in a coffee shop every week with my belief coach (laughs) in Charing Cross in the eastern suburbs of Sydney uh, was definitely until I felt that I was okay to put the version of Kate back out into the workforce. So I knew that I couldn't interview for the first a couple of months because I was just regrouping. I was trying to understand and make sense of what happened. And in hindsight, I'm really happy that I did take that time because when I then made a choiceful decision the next time, I had learnt from that experience, knew what questions I was going to ask, and I had that little extra ounce of sort of the resilience lesson that then I was able and I picked the right next job. In my experience, redundancy is something that women take really poorly as well and can take some years to get over. I mentor quite often women who are still scarred by redundancy. What's your experience with delivering redundancies? Because you would have potentially sat on both sides of that um, equation. Do you have any advice around redundancy and, and how someone should manage that process? Firstly, for me, and I always tell anyone that's ever worked for me in people and culture, because you have to do a fair few of those is the day that it gets easy or you're not affected by making someone redundant, get out of people and culture. Because unless you're going to bring your heart and your head and you're going to really empathise that you're actually about to have a significant impact on someone's life, someone's sense of self and someone's wellbeing. Predominantly, that's the case. There are others that have put their hands up for redundancy there towards the end of their career and it's yippee skippy and I've been hugged so many times because of a restructure. So I'm like, yay, I'm going to go off and sort out my lawn mowing business. I'm (laughs) I'm going travelling for 12 months. So that can be, yeah, I've certainly had both, both experiences. So you go from, you know, emotions like tears and real anger and you're destroying my life, even though you're really a spokesperson, right, to this euphoria. And that's, that is hard because you actually never know. And the redundancies that I think are going to go well often are the ones that go really badly as well, especially if you are so far removed. So as you get more senior in people and culture roles, you're often called to do the very difficult ones that no one else in your team and you often put yourself forward to do them. So 
the advice I always have, certainly if you're delivering on it, is bring your head and your heart. For someone that's being made redundant, I think it, unless it's a catastrophic thing that the business is about to fail, it is really hard if that's the first time you knew that your job is in doubt. So I always say to an individual, I've had, I'm coaching a couple of people at the moment who were made redundant, who early on said, I did not see it coming. But then now in hindsight, when they've gone back and they've got very average performance reviews, they've only looked for good feedback, confirmation bias, I'm great, everything's fantastic. And that's, I think that's not great leadership, right? I believe in what Brené Brown says, clear is kind, unclear is unkind, and you put people at risk. So that's what happens. You get the leaders not giving the right feedback and not saying, look, Kate, you're really focused on the wrong things. You're not delivering what you need to. We need to start working on a plan as to how you're going to improve. I think that's on the individual side. Um, on the leader side, on the individual side, the number of people that self-reflect that go, I wasn't really happy in that job. I really hadn't brought my heart to it. I hadn't been listening to the feedback. I hadn't looked at the warning signs. So I do also, I think one of my greatest pieces of advice is be really open listening to what is being said or not said to you in a business. Are you, the accountability is for us to keep our skills current to be ensuring that what we are working on is actually can still adding value to that business or that function. It's not just about the leader and the business. I think that's the individual accountability that all of us need to have. One quick final question. What skills do you see make a great leader? Wow. <laughs> well, the first thing I would say, great leaders, especially great people leaders, want to lead people. I see too many leaders that have, just because they're great at the technical job and then put in a position of, of being people leaders, and a lot of times they just don't want to be people leaders, right? So being a people leader is about coaching and developing and enabling others' success. It becomes less and less about your own success. Businesses don't grow. It's the people within teams that grow and develop. And so a leader has to enable that growth and development. Are there great leaders ensuring that they've set the purpose? People know what I am doing and how it contributes to the overall success of the business and it's in service of our purpose or of our, or our mission. So they create clarity. And I think that's what I've always tried to do is make sure people have clarity. Secondly, do they actually ensure that people have the right tools and the right information to do their job. So have I simplified it or do I make it too hard for people by hiding information as we talked about before, by not being available, by not providing the right coaching and, and developing? And the human element is, I think trust is so important in leadership. Do I do what I say I'm going to do? Am I consistent in the way in which I treat people? I stand for inclusive leadership. I think self-awareness is a very underrated skill in leader. I can tell you, Helen, what I'm, what I'm okay at and the list of what I'm not okay on is probably longer than what I'm okay on, but I'm okay about that. So I love diversity. 
And I love finding people that are smarter than me or have skills that I am never going to have. And I probably don't ever want to. And there's probably a reason why I've never been a CFO of a business, if you get my point. So I I do think that is how a leader actually allows everyone to shine. There's a humbleness of that. And there is also a care factor in that, that you are caring about other people's growth. And that goes back to how I started is you've got to really want to like enabling other people's success and not just your own. Kate Mason is always outstanding to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your personal story and your insights today. Thank you, Helen. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. Thompson.